This is How to Read. Brief Conversations with Brilliant Minds. How to Read is a series of brief conversations with literary scholars. I'm Milan, and in each episode, I sit down for a cup of tea with a different scholar, and we talk through their current research. And I'm Jess, the producer of How to Read. Today, we're talking to Bruce Robbins, an English professor who studies global literature and politics. We hope you enjoy the conversation. And now, back to Milan. We live in a world with a long history of atrocity, from the colonization of the Americas to the Japanese massacre at Nanking. Our guest Bruce Robbins is curious about how these past atrocities show up in novels. In our conversation today, he suggests that the key is how certain novels play with time. By paying attention to these shifting timelines, Bruce suggests readers can begin to imagine a more just future. Bruce Robbins, welcome to the podcast. What fun. So what first got you interested in how time functions in a novel? So I've been writing for more than 20 years about cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism is generally thought of in spatial terms Mm -hmm. as a kind of decentering of uh, what has been a very Eurocentric way of organizing knowledge um, and factoring in places that had not seemed very important uh, to certainly an older version of world literature, an older version of literature in general. Um, And that, you know, this is grossly something that has happened after the movements of national liberation, you know, in the period after the Second World War into the 60s and 70s, and scholarship has been a little bit slow to catch up. Mm -hmm. But little by little, okay, we've caught up. And cosmopolitanism has become uh, something that most people are sort of more or less in favor of. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to me a consequence of our buying into cosmopolitanism, which I do, mm-hmm. uh, which hasn't been very much recognized, which is that if you pay serious attention, let's say, to the literature and culture of China, if you pay serious attention to the literature and culture of India, then most of those literatures and cultures come from a period before there was really any relation with Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a conference, an excellent conference, in which the subject was empire before 1500. Now, empire before 1500, what does that mean? It means many of the empires that people were interested in were non-European empires. Mm-hmm. And the conference was interested in trying to come up with a proper vocabulary Mm -hmm. for dealing with both empires after 1500. That is the kind we're used to talking about and saying, this is a no-no, nobody should be doing this to anyone else. And then this other kind that, whether because of the passage of time, because of some unarticulated forgiveness that we offer things that happened a long time ago, or for whatever reason, we don't talk about these things in the same breath, with the same words. And yeah. that utterly fascinates me. I'm morally fascinated. You have to stop me if I'm not too much about yeah. this. Yeah, well, I'll stop uh, you in a minute, but I'm Yeah, you'll try. You'll see. By the idea of forgiveness as, let's say, an, uh, a habit that people in the humanities may have learned 
um, but they have never kind of articulated to themselves. You know, if people in Homer do terrible things, or the Bible, you know, yeah. ethnic cleansing in the Bible, if they do these terrible things, uh, how do we teach these books and forget yeah. that God calls on Moses to destroy the Midianites utterly, um, and when the the army comes back and they say, we did it, you called for us to destroy, it. all the Midianite men are dead, um, and we have brought you the children and the old people and the women, and Moses has a shit fit saying, no, 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 I expect this to be done well. I see live children, live old people. Yeah. I want them all dead, you understand. Wow. Now, this is That's a, not this a part is, of the Bible that is, I remember. Well, exactly. It's yeah. not a part of the Bible that people spend enough time on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they need to, mm-hmm. it seems to me. I, I'm going to stop. Now. Yeah. Well, I was about to stop you anyway, just to see if we can now pour some tea. Let's see if it's okay. brewed. Um, oh, yeah, that's looking a decent color. Let's see. So. Slurping sounds for background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It makes it more authentic. Um, mm. Okay. I'm going to rattle my papers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we move into the 20th century, um, other novelists that you see that are thinking through these issues of time, but especially in relation to justice? Well, um, there's a small literary form mm-hmm. um, which has an ancient Greek name called prolepsis which is basically a leap forward. Okay. And frequently it it's an analeptic prolepsis, which means what does that mean? it's a I'm going to explain. Okay. It, it's a leap forward in order to remember backwards. Okay. So the remembering backwards part is the analepsis. Yeah. And the prolepsis is the leap forward, but frequently you get both of them together. Okay. And one classic example of this is the first sentence of one of the great maybe the greatest uh, mid-20th century novel, um, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm -hmm. So the first sentence goes, Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. I have all of my students memorize this this line and recite it back to me to class after class. I, I get yeah. emails in later years. <laughs> you know, I'm in law school now and I just wanted you to know that I still remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And it led into um, the project that I'm most active now, active on now, which is the connection between prolepsis and atrocity. There's a very strange sort of unmarked um, affiliation between the use of prolepsis and descriptions of atrocity. And atrocity seems to me a very 20th century as opposed to 19th century uh, motif in fiction. I I love the 19th century novel. It's not good at atrocity. And it's especially not good at atrocity of the kind that most interests me, which is uh, self-accusation atrocity that we are saying we committed against someone else and we were wrong. Can you give an example then of in the 20th century someone who's um, using prolepsis to deal with um, this kind of self-accusation 
about an atrocity? Um, Haruki Murakami. Yeah. In the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, the key to the Wind Up Bird Chronicle is the coming to consciousness of atrocities committed by the Japanese army against the Chinese in Manchuria in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And when he does it, it's all done proleptically. Yeah. Um, and to, I'm not going to quote it to you. I could, actually, but <laughs> uh, almost, but uh, I won't. Mm. Um, what I try to suggest is that you need prolepsis to refer to a level of justice that is necessarily absent mm -hmm. from the world of the text. Okay. That is, there is no authority that is going to bring the Japanese who committed these, these atrocities to justice. Mm -hmm. He knows it. There is no way he can write a novel in which any such thing would happen. Yeah. And prolepsis, therefore, is a kind of reaching out toward a future in which there might be some, it, it's the kind of evocation of a missing future. And this is a motif for me that I have found over and over again. It's in Orhan Pamuk. Um, it's in uh, Salman Rushdie when he does the Amritsar massacre in, in Midnight's Children. It's in enough places, so I shouldn't be saying this on the radio because <laughs> it's a really good idea that I have to write up before <laughs> anyone else does. Well, once you've said it, that'll be a motivation <laughs> to get it done quicker. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay. Um, I think that's a really nice, clear example. Um, I'm going to be looking out for it from <laughs> now on. Um, so now that we're talking about things that are within living memory, I'm wondering whether you also connect some of these issues to your own past. Like, has that been something that it's brought up for you? Um... Well, to get personal sure, for a minute, <laughs> right? No, no. I mean, um, my father was a bomber pilot uh, based in England and flying over Germany toward the end of World War II. Um, and in my graduate seminar, I have assigned a text by Alexander Kluge, who. Um, gives an account of the raid of the 8th Army B-17 bombers on Halberstadt, where he was a 13-year-old child at the time. My father was in one of those planes flying over Alexander Kluge's head. Wow. Uh, now, this is, some would call this an atrocity. Mm -hmm. It was the deliberate bombing of civilians. And I could say that for some time I have been wrestling with the meaning of that event for me, something which is not recognized by the society around me as an atrocity. Mm -hmm. A certain number of people will point to the dropping of the atom bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and say uh, that was a serious no-no in world history. Many fewer people would talk about the conventional bombing of the German cities. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, how shall I say still thinking about that. So, so a, a, a moment from my, my own past, yeah. A future, um, a more just future that doesn't seem on the horizon at this point. I don't know. So I wanted to kind of conclude by bringing it back to kind of literary questions mm -hmm. um, and thinking about the novel and whether there are ways in which the novel is particularly suited to 
dealing with these issues of time or ways in which it's actually unsuited to that? I wouldn't put anything past the novel. I think Mm -hmm. the novel is very ingenious. Mm -hmm. Every time somebody says X is something the novel can't do, the novel goes out and does it. (laughs) Proves them wrong. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, I would say, uh, falling into my own trap, Mm -hmm. that it's very hard for the novel to tell a story that has a collective subject that goes way past any individual lifetime. Mm -hmm. But then the novel has gone and done that. You know, 100 Years of Solitude is a very good example. It, you know, goes way past any individual's lifetime. Yeah. Um, Science fiction is doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. The way that um, really serious writers like Margaret Atwood have taken over the, um, the materials of science fiction in order to put them to very serious purposes. Um, That seems to be another good example. So, yeah, no, I, I'm uh, I'm putting my money on the novel still. Great. All right. Bruce Robbins, thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. That was Bruce Robbins, a professor in the English and Complet Department at Columbia University. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at How to Read Now. How to Read is produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Jess Engebretson. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. <laughs>